Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Griffin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anderson. You're listening to episode 223 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Moonwalk. Neil, this is Houston. What's your status on hatch opening alert? Uh, everything is go here. We're just waiting for the uh, cabin pressure to bleed uh, to low enough pressure to uh, open the hatch. It's about 0.1 on our gauge now. Uh, Roger, we're showing a relatively static pressure uh, on your cabin. Uh, do you think you can open the hatch at this pressure, about uh, 0.12 psi? Uh, we're going to try it. Roger. Uh, the hatch is coming open. As the hatch opened, the last wisp of Eagle's atmosphere rushed outward in a flurry of ice particles, and the two men stood in the vacuum of space. It was obvious NASA had made the correct decision regarding who would be the first to lead the lander. Outfitted in his bulky space suit, boots, and backpack, there was no way Buzz could have maneuvered around Neil to the hatch. While Aldrin held the hatch open, Armstrong sank to his knees and carefully moved his suited bulk through the opening onto a large platform called the porch. The porch had large handrails on the sides, and it was used to bridge the gap between the hatchway and the ladder. When Neil's boots met the top rung, he grasped the handrails and raised himself upright. After five days of floating within the confines of the spacecraft, the change in visual scope was profound. The sensation of height absent in deep space or in orbit, returned to him. Before him, he saw the shadowed, foil-clad bulk of his lunar module. Beyond him, he saw a pristine wilderness. Neil took a strap with him, similar to a clothesline, that was fastened to a pulley, so that when he got down to the bottom of the ladder, Buzz could put the steel camera on the pulley and send it down to Neil. They would later use that same conveyor system to load the lunar samples and the boxes of rocks 
they collected from the surface and planned to take back to Earth. Neil could not descend down the ladder yet. For one thing, the world was waiting to see the event. Armstrong pulled a D-ring on Eagle's side and an equipment stowage tray lowered like a drawbridge. It was called the MESA, which stood for Modular Equipment Storage Assembly. And then, Neil told Mission Control, the MESA came down all right. Okay, everything's nice and stayed in here. Okay, can you pull the door open a little more? Right. Yeah. Okay. If you get the MESA out, I'm going to pull it now. On the Mesa, a small TV camera began transmitting to Earth, where Cliff Charlesworth and his team of controllers listened and waited. Moments passed, and then Armstrong heard Capcom's Bruce McCandless radio. We're getting a picture on the TV. On the big screen in Mission Control, a strange, almost abstract, black and white upside-down image flickered into existence. And we're getting a picture on the TV. TV. Have you had a good picture, huh? Uh, there's a great deal of contrast in it, and uh, currently it's upside-down on our monitor, but we can make out a fair amount of detail. It was back to the days of fiddling with the early TV. But Mission Control quickly readjusted the view and an excited McCandless reported. Okay, Neil, we see you coming down the ladder. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. The front leg of the lunar module slanted across a scene of black sky and bright ground, and at the top, the shadowy form of Neil Armstrong descended, one rung at a time, toward the surface. When Armstrong reached the bottom rung, he paused. The lunar module legs were designed to compress with the force of landing, bringing the ladder closer to the surface in the process. But Eagle had touched down too gently for that to happen. Armstrong was still more than three feet up. Neil silently scolded himself for landing too gently. Then he dangled his foot in space and launched himself into a slow-motion fall, landing on both feet inside the foil-covered footpad. Before he went any further, he wanted to be sure he could get back up. He sprang upward and almost missed the bottom rung, but at last managed to steady himself. Satisfied, he descended once more. Okay, I just checked... Uh Getting back up to that first step, uh, it's, uh, that isn't collapsed too far, but, uh, it's adequate to get back up. Roger, we copy. Pretty good little jump. Standing in the deep shadow, Armstrong looked down at the soil just beyond the footpad, and as he had done many times in training, he described what he saw for the benefit of the scientists on Earth. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine.
ingrained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. The lunar module foot pads were only depressed in the surface about one or two inches. That was an intriguing point since some scientists had speculated that the lunar surface could house a lot of dust and that Eagle's landing pads might sink deep down into the dirt, possibly even dangerously deep. In simulations, Armstrong's voice had been decidedly matter-of-fact. Now, it was laced with excited curiosity. Grasping the ladder with an upraised glove, Armstrong turned to the left and leaned outward. Yeah, now step off the lamb now. Silently, carefully, he raised his left boot over the lip of the foot pad and lowered it to the dust. Immediately, he tested his weight, bouncing in the gentle gravity and when he felt firm ground, he was still, one foot on the last vestige of earthly things, the other on the moon. He spoke. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That was a highly interrupted, detailed version of Armstrong's first step on the moon. Now I'm going to play the uninterrupted, real-time version that many of you and I witnessed on TV in July 1969. This is Walter Cronkite and Wally Sherall providing commentary. Now we should be getting that picture. Roger, TV circuit breaker's in. 
did not know was that Neil meant to say that's one small step for a man and the loss of the a set off an argument for years to come had a beep in the transmission covered the a or some other loss of transmission wiped it from our ears or had Neil nervously skipped the word in either case the world got the message and it was good. Before the flight, 
Neil's mother told him her only real concern for his safety on the moon was the lunar crust might not support him. So, again, Neil tested his weight and was reassured to find that his boot penetrated only a fraction of an inch. Still holding on, he stretched out his toe and dragged it backward several times, furrowing the soft ground. Dust clung like soot to the light blue sole of his boot. Having made his first tentative exploration, Armstrong lowered his right foot and stepped sideways, both hands resting on the big horizontal strut of Eagle's landing gear. And, at last, after bouncing up and down a few more times, he let go of Eagle and stood on the moon. At first, Neil was tethered to the ladder because no one knew for sure if the surface would be like quicksand, literally sucking a person down into a quagmire of dust. Surface is fine and powdery. I can, I can pick it up loosely with my toe. It does adhere to, in fine layers, uh, like uh, powdered charcoal, to the uh, to the and sides of my boot. I only go in a uh, small fraction of an inch, maybe an eighth of an inch, but I can see the footprints of my uh, boots and the treads in the fine sandy particles. As Armstrong moved away from the lander with the halting steps of a man learning to walk again, he moved with a shuffle, stiff-legged gait. It was difficult to bend at the knee, and movement came mostly from the ankles and toes. But he felt buoyant, something between walking and floating. Heavy and light were redefined. His spacesuit body, 348 pounds on Earth, now weighed only 58 pounds. It was almost familiar. The simulations were that good, and it was even easier to move around than he had expected. There seems to be no difficulty in moving around as, as we suspected. Uh, it's even perhaps easier than the simulations of 16G that uh, we performed uh, in various simulations on the ground. Absolutely no trouble to... Uh, Around. Neil knew that the first order of business was to collect a small bag of soil called the contingency sample. That would serve as the scientist hedge against an aborted moonwalk. But he would do that in sunlight, and he wanted to take care of getting a Hasselblad down to the surface while his eyes were still adapted to the darkness. This he accomplished with some effort as he and Aldrin operated a special conveyor line called the LEC. Okay, Buzz, we ready to uh, bring down the camera? I'm all ready. I think it's uh, two miles squared away in good shape. Okay. Okay, you'll have to pay out all the LEC. It looks like it's coming out nice and evenly. Okay, it's... Uh, quite dark here in the shadow and a little hard for me to see that I have good footing. 
I'll work my way over into the sunlight here without looking directly into the sun. Okay, it's taut now. Neil then mounted the camera on his chest and stepped forward to take photograph number one. It was to have been his first footprint on the moon, but during his movements to check out Eagle's stance and operate the conveyor line to bring the camera down, Neil accidentally walked over his first footprint. He was very disappointed that his latter steps had blotted out his first, but he couldn't change that now. So, still standing in the lander's shadow, Armstrong snapped some pictures. But pictures were not supposed to be his first priority, and after a minute, McCandless reminded him about the sample. Uh, Neil, this is Houston. Uh, did you copy about the contingency sample over? All right, you're going to get to that just as soon as I finish uh, these picture series. Buzz added his own reminder. Okay, you're going to get the contingency sample there, Neil. Then Neil reached into a pocket on his thigh and pulled out a collapsible handle with a detachable bag at one end. He moved into sunlight for the first time. The glare penetrated his mirror visor like a thousand-watt spotlight. Turning away, Armstrong began to dig into the surface, and what he found surprised him. Everywhere there was the same soft powder, and yet here and there... He met resistance. He managed to scoop up enough dust to fill the bag and even managed to snare a couple of small rocks. The geologist, he told himself, would get their money's worth. That looks beautiful from here, Neil, Aldrin said. Buzz was talking about the sample, but Armstrong responded as if he meant the moon. Oh, that looks beautiful from here, Neil. It has a start beauty all its own. It's uh, like m much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. We advise that uh, a lot of the uh, rock samples out here, the hard rock samples, have what appear to be vesicles in the surface. When Armstrong turned around, he saw the same strange transformation from bright tan to ashen gray that he had seen from the lunar module's windows. And when he held the contingency sample in his hand, the mystery of the moon's color deepened. The soil in the bag was almost black, like powdered graphite. Holding the now unneeded collector handle, Armstrong considered throwing it like a javelin, but thought better of it, and instead gave it an underhand toss. It sailed away on a long, lazy trajectory, spinning in slow motion in the sunlight and traveling an impossibly long distance before landing in the dust. Buzz jokingly said, I didn't know you could throw that far, Neil. Neil answered with a delighted laugh in his voice. You can really throw things a long way up here. Armstrong was elated, and for good reason. The moon offered him firm ground and good footing. Working in one-sixth gravity, in contrast to the grueling training sessions on Earth, was easy. 
Barring a major problem with equipment or with Eagle, the first moonwalk was bound to be as successful as anyone had hoped. By this time, Buzz had been waiting 14 minutes in the lunar module, and he asked Neil, Are you ready for me to come out? Okay, ready for me to come out? Yeah, just stand by a second. I'll move this over the handrail. Now it was Aldrin's turn. While Armstrong radioed guidance, Buzz emerged onto the porch. He offered a mild joke about making sure not to lock the hatch on his way out, which got a laugh from his commander. Okay, now drop your plist down. There you go, you're clear. And laterally, you're good. Got an inch clearance on top of your plist. Okay, you need a little bit of uh, arching of the back to come down. How far are my feet from the Okay, edge? you're right at the edge of the porch. Okay. Back in from... Small little uh, foot movement. Porch. Arching of the back. Moment comes up and clears the... Uh, bulkhead without any trouble at all. Looks good. Now I want to uh, back up and partially close the hand. Making sure not to lock it on my way out. <laughs> Then, very methodically, Aldrin made his own descent, describing his progress to the earth. When Buzz reached the footpad, he made a small leap to see if he would be able to get back up to the bottom rung. But he underestimated the lunar gravity, thinking it would be pretty easy to bounce back up. He missed by an inch scraping the bottom rung of the ladder. Now Buzz felt pretty awkward, and he had some moon dust on his suit. His shins were smudged. Later, people would wonder if Buzz had fallen down or knelt on the ground, but he had done neither. Just a minor scrape of moon dust that had been deposited from Neil's boots on the ladder. For a moment, Buzz lost a bit of confidence. Maybe it was not as easy as it looked to move around in this one-sixth gravity environment. Buzz decided this would be an excellent opportunity to relieve the nervousness in his bladder. Buzz didn't know if history granted any reward for such actions, but if they did, he was first. Buzz jumped again and this time easily reached the bottom rung. From there, he dropped back down to the footpad and turned around to take in the panorama. In every direction, he saw detailed characteristics of the gray ash-colored lunar scenery, pocked with thousands of little craters and with every variety and shape of rock. He saw the horizon curving a mile and a half away. With no atmosphere, there was no haze on the moon. It was crystal clear. But when he was standing in the footpad looking out at the moon, his powers of description momentarily left him. He saw disorder, and yet there was a precision. He would later say the precision of rock and dust. There must be some combinations of words that would describe it, but Aldrin could only utter, Beautiful view. Armstrong agreed. Isn't that something? Magnificent sight out here. Hearing this, Aldrin suddenly had the words he was looking for.
With quiet wonder in his voice, he said, Magnificent Desolation. Beautiful view. Isn't that something? Magnificent sight out here. Magnificent Desolation. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 223 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, Moonwalk, Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast, even the ones that no longer fit on the RSS feed. You can do all that on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Now, today I have a big announcement, one I've been working on for a while. There is a new RSS feed for the first 12 episodes of the podcast. That's right, the first 12. You can find it on the home page on the right side of the page. This means that the first 12 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitcher, and hopefully Google Play. To find the podcast there, search for Space Rocket History Archive. I can give you a whole lot more details on that if you care to listen to my off-topic remarks at the end of the podcast. But in the meantime, I want everybody to know the first 12 episodes do have an RSS feed, and I'll be adding more episodes to them to that feed in the future. I want to remind everyone the victims of Hurricane Harvey still need our support, and a good way to do that is to make a donation to the Red Cross the link is redcross.org. I will include it on the homepage as well. Today we salute the Sputnik donors. There are six Sputnik donors so far this year. Sputnik donors give $5 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Sputnik donors. Had a uh, few... Oh, one more announcement. Next week... We will have an encore episode as I will be traveling. So we'll put an encore episode. I picked out which one it is, and it is extremely relevant to what we're doing right now. The encore episode is, so you won't want to miss that next week. Well, I think Walter messed up just a little bit on that call. I believe he forgot there was a foot pad on the limb. When Neil was standing on the limb... Walter said he was on the moon. He was really standing on the footpad. But I can understand his excitement. Then, after Neil uttered his first words, Walter and Wally had a hard time making out the second part, the giant leap for mankind. Now, I was almost nine years old when I saw this live on black and white TV. And I must confess that I missed the second half of that quote as well. I can even remember asking my parents what he said. 
But, to Walter's credit, he got the information to us very quickly. Now, Armstrong reported after the flight that he had intended to say one small step for a man. But the indefinite article A was definitely missing from the transmission. In 1971, asked by writer Robert Sherrod whether the A had been lost in transmission or simply forgotten, Armstrong, clearly savoring the ambiguity, replied, We'll never know. Over the decades, people interested in details of this mission, like you and me, have listened repeatedly to the recordings without hearing any convincing evidence of the A. In 2006, with a great deal of attendant media attention, journalist entrepreneur Peter Shan Ford claimed to have located the A in the waveform of Neil's transmission. Subsequently, more rigorous analysis of the transmission was undertaken by people with professional experience with audio waveforms and, most importantly, audio spectrograms. None of these analyses has supported Ford's conclusion that the missing A was found. Now, one important point to remember is that the world had no problem understanding Armstrong's meaning. But perhaps the most important point, to me at least, was the place where he was standing when he said the first words. That would be on the moon. Okay. <laughs> I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Lawrence W. from California donated at the Mercury level. Mike B. from the U.K. donated at the Shuttle level. Eddie M. donated at the Sputnik level with rocket emoji. Andy W. donated at the Mercury level. And Eric Green increased his pledge on Patreon, moving him to the Mercury level. Unfortunately, the dog days of summer took two of my Patreons, so we regressed a bit back to 134 patrons, 16 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donors have reached 240 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have an item to give away this week. It is the NASA 3.5 inch in diameter meatball sticker. Designed in 1959, the NASA insignia contains the following element. The sphere representing a planet. The stars representing space. The vector representing aeronautics. 
and the orbit representing space travel. To select a winner, I gave every donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator, and I got the number for Jens Hucker. Jens, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. have several more of these stickers, so we should be able to have a drawing each week for the foreseeable future. Want to encourage everyone to share the podcast? Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so, like my retweeters. Here's Mrs. SRH to recognize the retweeters for August. Hello, everyone. This is Mrs. SRH, and here are our retweeters for August. 1202 Alarm, Ashley James Lee, Aviatrix 79, Beacon 63, Bird at Home, Honor to you, Buddy P. Murphy, Big Boss RLJ, Chris Towers, Cotton Science, Craig Leibert, David B. Nugent, DJ Sticky Boots, Eth Betty Moe, 1972, Code for Sale, Commander Yannick, Futurama King, Hare Bush, Jacob Hahn, James 2904, J. Stevens 21679, Kadavi 1202. KHS Astronomy, Kerbal Facts, KS Conservative 2, Gabriel Lewis, Juddy Bird, Joe C. Hecht, Falcon Fanatic 84, M. Lunyon, Man from Vanuatu, Matt Jenkins 1979, Matt Milko, M. H. Through Sport, Michael Hoadley, My Turn Racing, Minnie Hughes, Pee Wee 888, Parkhurst P1, Plunder 100, Pompeiator, Rapid Mustang, Rob J. Mack, Pyro for Jesus, PKTJE, Stephen Lebowski, Skibby, Shinar Squirrel, Sister Insight, Tardomatic, The JR Flyboy, This is Alex Boyd, Wayne Neville 75, William Bullock, Wet Hog, Saturn 500F, Stevenson Craig, and Uber PDF. Thanks for retweeting Space Rocket History. Thank you, Mrs. SRH. This is the end of content for this episode, and you're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. The week after next, we will continue from where we left off. The astronauts will continue their walk on the moon. Now, in podcast news... You heard me make the announcement that I created a new RSS feed for the first 12 episodes of the podcast. Why did I do that? I did this because I want every episode of the podcast to be available on an RSS feed so it can get into iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and everywhere else. The problem that I'm trying to fix is iTunes limits the size of my RSS feed. So all the 223 episodes will not fit on it. I promise you, I have tried every way to make that work. They simply will not fit. I have the number of iTunes episodes set at 195 because when I go any higher than that, iTunes will not accept my feed. And as I post new episodes... One old episode falls off the feed. You add one, and then one falls off the back end of the feed. 
So the maximum number of the old feed is 195 episodes, which leaves out too many of the early episodes. To fix the problem, I opened up a new account at Podbean. Of course, I had to spend some money to do that. You may ask, why are you spending money during the dog days of summer? Well, I guess it's because I want everyone to be able to access all episodes with an RSS feed. In other words, they can use that on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or one of the other podcatchers. The Podbean account that I have is somewhat limited. I can only upload 100 megabytes worth of episodes per month. So that will probably work out to four or five episodes per month. So next month, October, I'm going to upload four more old episodes, and it will probably go through the first 16 or 17 episodes, something like that. Now to use the feed, you can go to the home page and click on the archive RSS feed, or you can search for Space Rocket History Archive on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Here's the most important thing. Do not be alarmed. This is an addition. Everything still works the same as it used to. Nothing has been removed. All episodes are still available on the home page. You don't have to do anything different. Unless you want to. If you want, you can add the Space Rocket History Archive feed to your iTunes subscription or Stitcher or Google Play subscription. But you really don't have to do that if you don't want to listen to the episodes. You can still get them off the home page. So hopefully, this will allow a more convenient access to old episodes that have fallen off the main podcast feed. To summarize, Space Rocket History Podcast now has two RSS feeds, one for the most recent episodes and one for episodes 1 through 12. Let's move on. In podcast news, August was the second highest downloads so far. In August, the podcast was downloaded in 102 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most episode downloads in August. Number 1, U.S. Number 2, U.K. Number 3, Australia. Number 4, Canada moves up. Number 5, Germany. Number 6, Japan. Number 7, Sweden moves up to the 7th place. New Zealand moves up to 8th. France moves up to 9th. And Netherlands moves up to number 10. Big shout out to all of you in countries 1 through 10. We are going to be leaving on our trip very soon. So next week, as I mentioned, will be an encore episode. We're trying to get to Michigan first, since the further north you go, the sooner the campgrounds close. So you got to kind of hit the furthest north ones first, even though you're driving past some of the things you want to see in Ohio. But you, we got to get to the furthest one first, because they close early up there. So... We will be traveling, and I, I didn't want to put up an episode that didn't have as good a quality as I could produce, so I'm going to wait a week and put up the next episode in two weeks. But next 
the uh, next episode that comes up will be an encore episode that is very appropriate for this mission. As I travel, I will try to report back to you with some of the interesting space-slash-aviation-type places that we visit. So stay tuned for that. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. There will be an encore episode next Thursday and a new episode in two weeks. So long for now.